Hi everyone and welcome back to the Paramo podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Uh, really great to have you all with us again. Um, yeah, it's always great to to be with you. And uh, today, um, a friend of mine is returning to the show, um, Nikki Pappas, who was on a while back talking about her podcast and sharing her story. Um, has now got a book out and it's very exciting and um, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about um, that today so welcome back to the show thank you so much for having me it's so great to be back with you yes it is and I've been on your podcast since you were on mine as well so it's um, we've chatted a lot since since last time anyway Um, yeah so um, I'm glad you're here and your book is called as familiar as family Yes. Um, and it's about leaving toxic religion. It's your story. Mm. Um, I read, I've managed to read uh, a fair bit of it and I love it. And uh, the chapter titles are very, very clever. Um, like, it's, I've never seen anything like it with book title, with chapter title. With, well, with, yeah, with section titles rather than chapters, I think. Like, it's uh, not chapter titles, is it? It's. Um, um, can I give that away? Yes, <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Well, there's like there's like six sections, right? And the first section is called I. The second section is called Lived For. The third section is called The Approval Of. The fourth section is called Someone Else. Section five is called And Lost. And section six is called Myself. Now, I'm sure that most of you can put those words together. So uh, I left for the approval of someone else and lost myself. Um, that mm-hmm. is, um, and I just love that because it's so imaginative, but also so accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I'm on the same story, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, so tell us about this book and uh, where it kind of, where it kind of came from. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I read a book, I think it was in the memoir project by Marion Roach, and she talked about how the argument of a book, like each book is making an argument. And so she said, if you can write down your argument, you can get your structure for your book. And so that is the genesis of the, what became the section titles was because I decided my argument, the thing I would be driving for in my storytelling would be to illustrate how I lost myself by living for the approval of someone else. And so I then started the book with I kind of gave the reader some background information about myself. And then along the storyline, you see how I started at a church and how initially I was welcomed into that church and it felt like family to me but safer in a way because of the, uh, I could now see how toxic my family relationships were. Mm. And I thought that the church relationships, because they were not emotionally and physically violent or abusive in calling me names and things like that, it just felt healthier, right? And over the course of my time there, I really lived for the approval of the pastor there. And eventually, I lost myself, became a shell of who I was at the church, and that led to spiritual abuse. And then I end the book, the last section is myself. And so it's coming out of that toxic environment, the losing of all of that relationship and and all the friends there or not all of them but a 
a good chunk of people from that church and the relationship with the pastor, losing all of that, but ending the story on myself. So I, I started with I, <laughs> right? Section one, I, and then come back to myself and end with where I am on my journey and yes. finding who I am, embracing who I am and living into that. That's I love that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Um, see, I've read the I bit. I haven't read the myself bit yet. Um, I'm still working my way through the book. So um, that's going to be exciting to get to. Um, yeah. But that's it. That's the arc, isn't it? I guess that's the journey. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. um, and it's kind of an ongoing journey. It's not like you get to yourself and then you're finished. Because mm-hmm. we're never finished, are we? Right? We're 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 always growing and learning and unlearning and everything and finding out more of us, finding more of ourselves. So, ah, oh, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that people find that listening find that story familiar as well. Like that, you know that um, that you can easily when you when you get when you get sucked into kind of religious certainty or toxic religion. That you that I mean that's kind of what it does, isn't it? it you lose yourself, you'll lose your own identity because your mm-hmm. identity is in Christ, in you know, in um, in inverted commas, you know, that um, and so you kind of you have to kind of lose your identity, and that's mm-hmm. like, and they kind of make that sound like a virtue rather than something that's, something that's not good. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I'm actually realizing what I, you and I fell for this as well. So, um, it's so many people's story. Um, how, how did that? How did that happen for you? Yeah. So I opened the book. The intro is an interaction with the pastor where I'm being directly spiritually abused. It's kind of the but the story that would be the impetus for me eventually leaving the church, right? But right after that intro, I flash back. Chapter one starts with how I met the pastor. And so I end up at this church because of who this pastor presented himself to be and how throughout my life, I've been searching for belonging. I want to feel like I belong. I want to feel like I am wanted in a space, that I'm needed there and that I'm loved by the people there. And so when I met this pastor and his wife on a weekend retreat for college students, because I was in college at the time, he was getting ready to plant his own church, to start his own church. And so I met him that weekend. We kind of bonded over this silly thing where I was doing a zip line and I do not like heights, but I did it anyway. And then I was screaming my head off and about to cry. And he thought it was funny, but not in a like, I didn't feel like he was laughing at me in a mean way. I felt like, oh, I'm making him laugh. (laughs) And so it made me feel kind of special the way that I was like, oh, I stand out in a way right? He's going to remember me in this moment that we've met. Like, oh, that's cool because he didn't really talk to a lot of people, but he was talking to me. And so there was this way of feeling valued and feeling special. And I am extroverted. So once the church started and I started attending the church, it became very 
apparent that my extrovertedness was needed for getting people in the doors and keeping them at the church. And so my extrovertedness kind of served as a valuable asset to the church. And so from the pulpit, the preacher would just praise the extroverts of the church and just talk about how much we were needed and how he really struggles with small talk, but we're so great at, you know, getting in there, talking to people. And so then I felt like, oh, I am wanted here. I'm needed here. And I think that that is such a powerful driving force to feel wanted, to feel needed, and to feel valuable. And that's how I felt at the beginning at the church. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is very powerful. I. Yeah, it's amazing, actually, that when you stand away from it, just you realize what it was and what was being done to you. And. Or, you know, how obvious it looks from the outside. But, it, yeah, um, just being so convinced that you have to be part of this thing and that you have to give yourself to wholly and fully to this thing and mm-hmm. that it's normal and that it's that's what life is and that that's, that's your identity. Um, and that, you know, things like your desires are bad. You know, this kind of, whole reverse you know i mean you know you know the whole reverse thing of like if it's something you want to do then god doesn't want you to do it right mm-hmm. <laughs> like which is which like when you're when you're in that in that space it's like oh that sounds right because it's all about self-sacrifice right but but when you're out of it it's like that, that makes no sense whatsoever like even even if you're still believing in god why would god give people desires not to use them right like like you know, like you know, if my desire is to is to make things, to create things that help people, why would why would a good loving divine being not want me to do that? Right? <laughs> like, um, if I desire a partner, why would why would why would why would somebody want to stop me from doing that? You know, now obviously there's healthy desires and unhealthy desires, but that's a whole different thing. Like. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just bizarre. But yeah, and, and but you get sucked into it so easily, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I would say that early on, one of the earliest memories I have of this misbelief taking root in me of thinking my body is not my own. Right. And so that was when I was sexually abused as a child. Mm. And connecting that in my book to the spiritual abuse that went on to happen because when as a child I have this misbelief that my body is not my own and that what I want doesn't matter, that the people in power know better than I do, the people with authority over me know better than I do, and I just need to submit to them. When you take all of that baggage from my childhood and misbeliefs from my childhood and then come into a high control religious situation where a whole theology is put to this where I'm literally being told, like, you are not your own, right? You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body from First Corinthians, something like that, right? Um, and when I'm being told that it's all about you're part of a family now. And in a family, we were we were told at this church, when you're part of a family, you have to do things you don't want to do. 
So it's all this messaging of for the good of the church, you have to just do things you don't want to do. And again, these are messages that someone who like no one really needs to hear those messages. Maybe the people who hold power need to hear the message that like, hey, you're part of something bigger here. Your preferences should take the back seat because you have the power and people will default to you. So let's move away from you having the power. But for the people who are disempowered, for the people who feel they don't have a voice, for the people who have been abused and traumatized, the message we do not need is you are not your own, right? And that was the message over and over again at the church I was a part of. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so again, just connecting the wounds of my childhood with what I went on to experience in a different way, but at the root of it was still the same power con- power dynamics and control and abuse, though it looked different from the outside because the church context just had this Christian veneer to it. And like you said, the, all these things that are painted as if it's virtuous, that you would die to yourself and that you would do all these things when it's like, it's not virtuous if it's coming from this place of, well, I can't speak up because I don't want to be excommunicated. Yeah. And that's, yeah, exactly. Like if you're, I mean, that's, that's just like the big, one of the biggest red flags going, isn't it? If you are afraid to speak your mind because you're afraid that you'll be excluded for any reason or in any way, that's like, get out of there. Like, just get out of there right now. Like, that's not a safe place to be. Um, you know, especially for a woman in a place where male power dynamics are very strong, right? Which is in mm-hmm. evangelical, in American evangelical churches, that's, that's it. The power dynamic is with white men. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it a much less safe place for a woman mm-hmm. or female female body at birth um and so it, yeah it's very dangerous because like if they're making you blind if they're making people blindly believe stuff and do stuff out of blind almost cult-like belief then they can you can just then it's it becomes easy for them to justify abuse or disguise it as something else um mm-hmm. any kind of abuse spiritual abuse or any kind of other kind of abuse uh, I mean, we've seen, literally seen it, like, in there's so many cases of it coming out now. Um, and it's it's terrifying, really, when you think about how easy it was for people to persuade people to, you know, to kind of fall into this trap. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think at the core of it, at least in my own experience, is coming back to that idea of belonging And what Mm -hmm. I end up writing about in my book is that by the end, I realized the key to belonging was in me all along, right? I was searching for it outside of myself. I was searching for it in people who, to go back to what you were saying, if you have to basically adhere to this certain set of beliefs and all these things to belong, then it's not true belonging. If you have to shed parts of yourself and your own identity in order to be accepted, it's not true belonging. And it just was a long journey for me to realize that and for me to be able to step back and to realize 
The key to belonging is in me. I don't have to look for it outside of myself. Mm, that's right. It's already in you. Mm-hmm. That was going to be my next point. Like, was there any, at what point did you kind of start to intuitively realize that you were somebody else mm. and that you needed to find that person away from what they were telling you you had to be? Yeah, it would probably be when I discovered the Enneagram was the first, I think, nugget that I can really point to of realizing I tested as a type two, but then as I read about it and the two for anyone who doesn't know is the helper. And as the more I read about it, the more I was like, I don't think this is who I am. And so I read about some of the other types and I realized, oh, I'm a three. I'm a type three. More than that, I now realize I'm a sexual dominant type three. And what the sexual dominant types do is merge with the people around them. And then the three is characterized as a chameleon at times, able to adapt to the environment that they're in. And so as I realized, oh, I exchanged the things I wanted in order to bond with this pastor, I exchanged the things I wanted to pursue in my life to help this pastor build his church. And I had been a teacher before I had children. And then I ended up realizing so much of the messaging around me was being explicitly told that being a wife and a mom were the, or being a mom was the highest and holiest calling. And so when I realized, as I read about the Enneagram and realized I was a type three and saw how I had decided that, oh, well, if this is what it is to be successful, quote unquote, successful in this environment, then this is what I'll be. And then I realized, oh, I was just making decisions based on what other people wanted for me and what other people said, even going back to being a teacher that was because that's what I was told I would be good at by family members and that kind of thing. I hadn't interrogated, is this what I want to do? And so, yeah, I think just learning about myself, about my desires and my motivations and why I do what I do really unlocked something for me to say, to ask the question, well, what do I want to do? What does Nikki want? What do I want for my own life? And not just following what other people want for me Mm. yeah and it only takes one little seed to be planted really to Mm -hmm. just shift shift your mind and your heart and your intuition to a different thing to kind of rip you out of that what you what you've been in doesn't it it's i mean like I think for me, like my, my, the, the thing that really set it off was my mother dying. Hmm. Like, because that's a, like everyone knows what the trauma, you know, how big a trauma that can be. Like, and it's, it was such a big disruption for me. I said this elsewhere that it, the, the idea of God that I had and everything was, was just didn't, didn't work anymore. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't mm-hmm. satisfactory enough to, to, to deal with, to deal with this stuff. And, I had all these, after that, I had all these questions. And, that, and then I just kept asking questions. Mm. And that led me where I am now, probably. Um, mm. 
and it, it, it only takes one thing sometimes to just just rock the boat enough that you can see a different perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so how did that kind of then evolve in terms of like it's starting to kind of unravel and you know, kind of discover yourself and kind of discover how you'd lost yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And there's a lot here. So I'll try to be brief, <laughs> succinct and say that I think in beginning to know myself and get to learn about myself, that opened up the possibilities to getting to know other things, right? As I was open to seeing maybe, like you said, a new perspective on myself and on other people. There was something very revolutionary with the Enneagram about being able to extend curiosity and compassion to myself and then let that flow to displaying and overflowing with curiosity and compassion to other people. And and I think we might have talked about this either when we talked first time or when you were on my podcast about curiosity and compassion and internal family systems model of therapy. But even before I was like officially in therapy, I was already starting to have that curiosity and asking questions. And so it was kind of just this natural progression of as I asked questions about myself and tried to get to know myself, then I had more questions and then I had questions about what I believed because if everything I'd been taught about myself, you know, was rooted in control tactics and then I'm learning about this personality typing kind of thing and way of understanding myself and my motivations because theologically, if I was taught that the reason I do the bad, quote, bad things that I do is because I'm totally depraved. And now with the Enneagram, I'm getting other language that helps explain why I make the decisions that I make and do the things that I do. Then it's like, oh, so maybe I'm not this horribly wicked sinner. (laughs) You know, maybe there's this other way of understanding who I am. And so as I began to understand who I am and who I'm becoming, Then I started asking questions about, uh, you know, we talked about this in our other conversation when it came to uh, white supremacy and racism in the United States in the context that I'm in. There's an organization called Be the Bridge. And that organization, there was a chapter in our area. And so I joined it, started reading a lot of books and talking to people and joining groups on Facebook and all these things that were a a whole new way of thinking about racism and white supremacy in particular. And so from there, again, leading with that curiosity, I was then on this journey towards understanding sexism and the patriarchy and how it's not God's good design, (laughs) as I have been told. And so it was just kind of that way of one question leading me to another question. And I wasn't nervous. I wasn't afraid about asking the questions and just kind of kept going from there. That's it. Once you're down, once you're on down, going down the rabbit hole. Uh huh. Like, and it is kind of a slippery slope, but in a good way, right? You know, is that, that, is that they, they, like, often people who um who are trying to criticize people who leave or 
deconstructor, like, oh, it's a slippery slope. You know, and I'm like, and now I'm kind of like, yeah, kind of. So and I, I'm 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 happy to go down it. Like, um, like I don't know where exactly it's going to go, but I know that it's better than where I've been, um, and I know that I'm going to keep growing as a result of it, and it's going to be fun um, <laughs> when it's all slippy and everything, and you're like, it'll be fun. So um, I just love how we can how you can now kind of like almost um, reconfigure or re or reverse engineer these kind of things that were used against us to kind of be kind of cool things like you know, yeah free slope thing um yeah um and what did that look like that, that, that kind of process like how challenging was it to you know to, to because there's a grieving isn't there of when you start to leave that stuff behind because you lose relationships and you lose um you lose you lose routines that you've been in even if they were bad ones they're still familiar so like this you lose things that are familiar and then you have to move into something that's new and uncertain i've definitely experienced this like mm-hmm. i've had times where i kind of almost wish i still had the routines that i had um or some of the certainty that i had you know but um and that's a normal thing so how, how what did that look like for you yeah, well, even you bringing that up about like what was familiar, right? If there's that study, if you've heard about it, of the mice and the mice who are raised in like this chaotic environment versus the mice that are raised in this more serene environment and how the mice who are raised in the chaotic environment, even when given the opportunity to go to this calm and serene environment, will go back to the chaotic environment. And again, it's because of what is familiar. And then for me, that looked like, even though I grew up in this, again, outwardly and anyone who could see it, it's like abusive, toxic, familial relationships and how I just replaced those with a religious context that was at the root, some of the same issues just look different on the outside or to an outside perspective. They would think, oh, well, I guess maybe someone who's in a similar situation would be like, you know, I, I've said this in my book. I wrote about how the men at the church didn't call me names. The men at the church didn't do all these things. And so it's like, if it sounds like the bar was low, that's because it was right. Like here's what was familiar to me. So it just had to be a little bit better than that for me to feel like, Oh, this is a better situation. Right. And so then once I started realizing, Oh no, it's not that different under the surface, there is uh, narcissism, all this hypocrisy, a hierarchy, as well as, again, the control, the power dynamics, and the spiritual abuse. And then the big thing was emotional detachment. It's right. I realized how emotionally detached my dad was from me and then saw that in this relationship with this pastor, emotional detachment, right? And so it's like, okay, well, that is what was familiar to me. Emotional detachment was familiar to me. But as I got to know myself and know what I want and what I need to feel safe and to feel connected, and then this pastor directly spiritually abused me, that led me on a six-month journey of connecting with myself, again, asking more questions and encountering the work of Rachel Held Evans and 
working through a lot of those things and then coming out on the other side of it, like deciding six months after being spiritually abused, having a follow-up meeting finally six months later and deciding my time at the church is over because during that six months, so much had changed for me personally to where I knew what I deserved. I knew that I needed to be treated with respect and that this wasn't respectful, what he was doing, how this pastor was treating me to where I was like, well, I can't settle for anything less than being treated well. I will not be treated like he's treating me. And so coming out of the church, yes, was very hard losing a lot of relationships, but there were some relationships with people who had already left the church to where I know some people, they come out of a situation and don't have a network or don't have support systems, but I did. I had people who I could confide in, talk to. So I had a, I had a support system and that kind of helped. Well, that helped a lot (laughs) in coming out of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's important, isn't it? We 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 all need community. We all need safe community. Um, if we're going to be healthy, like anyone who's deconstructing or whatever, leaving the church or going on this journey, whatever you want, whatever label you want to use, you need to find people. Your people. You need to find people that are your support network and mm-hmm. and will stay with you through that journey. Um, um, and because we're not meant to do this, do this stuff on our own. We're not meant to, you know, um, we're meant to be in community in some, in some way, shape or form. Um, we need each other. Um, we need solidarity. You know, that's why there's so, it's so great that there's so many little communities growing up, um, kind of organically online, which are kind of, of people that are going through this journey because it, because it means that you're not alone. It means that if you leave things behind or leave people behind or leave communities behind that are toxic, then you're not alone. Uh, and that's definitely been important for me. Um, and I'm sure it's been important mm. for you as well, right? Yeah, for sure. Because seeing how I need to surround myself with people who cultivate the best in me and who don't expect me to change who I am in order to quote belong like we were talking about. And so that was a part of my journey too, was realizing the only relationships worth cultivating and maintaining are the ones rooted in a mutuality rather than a hierarchy. And so having relationships with people who don't try to control me, who don't try to act like they know better for me than I know for myself And that's been hard. And even from the book that you'll be reading, it's hard because there are some relationships in there that look different now, even though at the time of the writing of the book were how I presented them. They were good relationships and those things changed. And my editor asked me during one of the final read throughs if there was anything I would want to change, if I would want to not have a certain relationship or some relationships be such a primary focus. And I said, no, I want to honor what these relationships were at the time that they were that thing. Right. And so that's been a part of the journey too, right. Of realizing, oh, like things are constantly changing and I accept that change, 
but also I don't want to look back on something and act like it didn't serve a purpose or rewrite it in a way that would diminish the purpose that something served. Because even when you look at the church that I was a part of for a time, the church, that particular church and that pastor in a coping mechanism type of way helped me survive, right? Eventually that was no longer the case and I, and I left, right? And that's okay. But I don't want to act like it wasn't beneficial for me at a time or, or not necessarily beneficial, but because obviously under the surface, it it was in the long term not beneficial, but in that moment, in a short term uh, sort of solution, it helped me get through something, right? I outgrew it, I it, which I don't mean that to sound like a superiority thing, as if if you're still there, you haven't outgrown it or you're not growing, but... I personally was like, this doesn't work for me anymore. This isn't what I want anymore. And so coming out of that and seeing how the people who I want to surround myself with. Okay, I'll tell this quick story. I had an aunt growing up who was my favorite aunt. She taught me how to do so many things and I get my love of mint chocolate chip ice cream from her, the green kind with thin mint shavings. And also she just spent time with me. She would pop popcorn and put chocolate in it. And I still do that. And then I had some aunts who had a lot more money than this aunt did and who were Santa Claus for me and who bought me really nice things. Right. And then I watched those aunts spend time with some of my other cousins, but not spend intentional one-on-one time with me. Whereas my aunt who couldn't buy me nice things spent time with me. And so for me personally, I have learned that practicing presence with me is what makes me feel known, right? And that's what makes me feel connected to someone. And so for better or worse, that's how I'm see the world. That's how I interact in the world. That's how I, you know, and especially if I've told someone, if I've communicated with someone that what I need is time together, and then that person doesn't prioritize. And I'm not saying I need to see someone every day. I'm not saying I need to see a friend every week. I'm just saying I need to know that my friendship is a priority for us to see each other in person when we can, right? And so Now, seeing how my aunt, who practiced presence with me, it's like she wasn't perfect because none of us are, but those best qualities in her or the qualities that made me come most alive and made me feel most valued, that's what I'm looking for in the people who I'm in community with now is I want it to be a reciprocal, right? Mutual, not me just taking and me just expecting to be loved the way I need to be loved, right? I, I want to return that love as as other people need to be loved. But yeah, like just realizing how I can't make someone love me that way and I'm not going to try to make them love me that way. And so that's different from how like there are relationships that I said, like even at the end of the book that I wrote about that are different now, but I told my editor, no, that's what it was at the time. And I want to honor what it was back then, even if it's not that anymore. Mm, I love that. 
that's 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 real integrity as well. Like um, maturity as well. Like to say that relationship was 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 good for me at that moment. It was healthy for me. It was nurturing for me. But now it's not. Um, mm-hmm. That's okay. Um, and you know, moved on from that. But I'm still going to acknowledge the role that relationship played in my life. You know, mm-hmm. that's um, that's a really healthy way to approach it. I think. Like, um, I mean, did did the pro did what did the process of writing the book do for you in terms of like healing and like you know and um, moving through it and your own and your own growth? Mm-hmm. Yes. So. In 2019 was when I started therapy, and in the end of 2019 was when I started, or no, maybe it was April 2019, I think, was when I did the first poetry month, you know, Nash, uh, what is it? Like, yeah, you know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, so I participated in, in April of 2019, and I started therapy in October 2019 maybe and then in 2020 I started entering my writing into different competitions and all this stuff and my therapist was like wow like she was impressed that I was putting my work out there because again coming out of that church and everything that happened I was ready to move cities I was ready to (laughs) do all these things to not see certain people and my therapist looked at me and she said if you want to move because you want to, then do it. But if you're moving just to avoid certain people from your church context or that kind of thing, like don't let them take that from you. Like they've already taken so much. And there was something in that when she said that, that unlocked something for me. And I started just living my life where I am instead of being so nervous to leave the house because I don't want to run into someone right? Which I still don't want to run into certain people, but I was like, okay, I can do this. I can face this. And that's when I started really working on my writing and I had signed up. This is funny. Like how I signed up for yoga. I signed up to audition for a play and all this stuff. The weekend that I was ready to do all of that, Uh, Like it was all going to be starting up the next week is when COVID shut everything down here in March, 2020. And so it was like, I was finally getting ready to like take my life back and do the things in, in my city that I wanted to do. And then everything got shut down. So I was like, okay, cool. So we're going to reconvene, figure out what I can do. And that's when I really started entering my writing into competitions. And yeah, my therapist said, there's something cathartic about writing for you. And so she's the one who encouraged me, like, keep writing, not necessarily keep writing in order to enter into competitions or in order to publish a book one day, which publishing a book really wasn't even, it's like, it was a far off dream in 2020, like an idea that I would like to one day do that, right? And so her telling me that this is what is going to help you heal. And she saw the value in it for me, for my own personal healing. So that's when I started really writing. And the first, well, I guess I should say the very, very, very first iterations of what would become the book that you have now been reading were like eight years ago or something, seven years ago. And obviously it's a very different book now than it would have been had I published Mm. it back then. Very, very different. But there are little nuggets of 
the same story. There are pieces that were there in that very, very first draft. And then I didn't touch it because I shared it with someone from my previous church context. And she was supposed to kind of mentor me as a writer and all the stuff. She read it and then never talked to me about it. She let me know she read it, but then we never, it never went anywhere. And so it was kind of a deflating, like, oh, well, then I guess maybe it wasn't good or that kind of thing. And so then I quit writing. So again, kind of, I started a blog at one point though, but again, it was about being a mom because of course it was, because that's what I was told (laughs) I could, I could write about. So that was when I was still at the church. And then fast forward to leaving the church, doing the writing and entering competitions, I took that very, very early draft from however long ago, I reworked it and I made it like a third person fictionalized story. And that distance really helped me to get some things out that I wanted to say about the spiritual abuse and the church stuff, but I could do it in a more detached way because Mm, it wasn't me, you know, it was like this character I created. And so I did that first. I wrote that, entered that into competitions. It didn't get picked up. And then I worked on it at the beginning of last year. I started working on it again in a new way. And that turned into this kind of revenge novel against the church and the pastor. And it was pretty angry and bitter, which I think I needed. Yeah. Personally, I needed to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But then I was like, okay, but people don't need to read this, right? This is for me. Uh, This won't help anyone move through. It's going to help me move through because it's part of my process, but it won't help someone else really get through what they're going through. And that was when I, at the beginning of this year, in February this year, I had beta readers read a 108-page draft of what would become the book that is now out as Familiar's Family, which is a 350-page book. So it went from 108 pages to 350 pages because from the feedback from the writers, I realized, oh, I need to talk more about this and more about this and just adding more depth and nuance and layers and stories to illustrate that overarching argument that I was making that I lost myself living for the approval of someone else, right? Mm. Yeah, I always feel like I, I talk about this this subject a lot on this show. Um, art always has a purpose. Like it always, and it always has a purpose for us. Whether it has a purpose for anybody else is actually secondary. It's like, like that second bit, the revenge novel, right? That was, that was literally just for you. You wrote that for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, and for yourself, not in the sense that, not in an indulgent way, but in a kind of, in a therapeutic way. You know, stuff in you that you needed to get out of your body. Yeah, and art allows us to do that, um, and nobody else has to see it. It's great. Like there's when you actually like, and this is a, almost a different subject, but it's it is related. That when you free yourself from like I don't the, um, from having to make stuff for other people, you can make mm-hmm. whatever you want, and you can really enjoy it, and nobody ever has to see it, and it doesn't mm. matter. And it's yes. so like oh gosh, it's so liberating. From this kind of Christian slash well, evangelical evangelical slash um, capitalist kind of view of like art that has to have a purpose and it has to be for people and it has mm-hmm. to make money and it has to 
help, has to help loads of people, whatever, to be valuable. And, that, and that's not true. Like, all art is valuable. It all has a purpose. Even the stuff that gets thrown away, even the stuff that never gets finished, it all means something. It all does something for us. Like, and for people on this journey, like, there's this kind of ongoing joke about people who deconstruct starting a podcast or writing a blog and things. Um, and it's accurate. But I think the the kind of flip side to that is the serious side to that is that the reason that happens is because this is this is how people are processing their grief and their trauma and all the stuff that they're carrying. Like because art and creativity allows us to do that. So of course people are gonna make podcasts, they're gonna write books, I'm gonna write I'm gonna write stuff themselves, they're gonna and they're gonna write blogs that maybe nobody reads or except whatever. They're gonna they're gonna do that because it's a way of processing. Uh, and it's a way of healing, like, um, and because as well, people are discovering things about themselves that they didn't know and desires and they're, they're discovering curiosities about things. And I mean, like literally this podcast exists because I was curious about making a podcast. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah. And like, it's been healing for me. Like I don't make it for, I don't make it to, um, like to make money and I'm, I'm thinking because i love doing it because i because i learn learn a lot and in from doing it and i enjoy it and and it and the fact that it helps other people is always like a like a gift like mm. a bonus you know that's a that's a, just a privilege really to be able to make things which help other people but yeah i mean like i love i love i love that that you that you've made all this all these things and they've been part of your journey as much as like that they weren't for anybody else really that like this book okay maybe it's for other people and it's going to help other people but ultimately it was part of your journey to growth and healing um to share that story so um yeah wow and i can't wait for people to read it it's uh yeah it's um what i've read so far it's brilliant so i'm sure the rest of it's brilliant as well um so um thanks for coming on the show Yes. Well, thank you for those kind words. That's very, very nice of you to say. And yeah, just to add one more thing, it's even in my own healing, I have seen how I am the primary beneficiary of my healing and that yes, there will be secondary beneficiaries of that, but it's primarily so that I can create space in my own nervous system and for my own healing and growth. And that then that will spill over into the people around me. And so, yeah. And that's what I hope my book can do is help people figure out in their own lives, what sort of toxic environment, even if it's not toxic religion, is there a toxic relationship or some other toxic environment that they can learn from my story and how I got out, how I found my voice, how I processed everything so that then they can do that for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Where can people come? Where can people find your work and more of what you do? Yes. Well, so my book is available on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes and Noble site. And you can also go to my website, NikkiPappas.com. And there's a landing page that can connect to all the places where my book is. Then I've got my podcast, Broadening the Narrative that we talked about before and people can find me on Instagram at broadening the narrative. I have a Facebook group for broadening the narrative and Twitter at broad narrative. Yeah. Fantastic. 
highly recommend following uh, Nikki's work um, and get hold of that book. It's available right now. So, uh, um, yeah, go get it. Um, and, uh, yeah, you'll be the ones that benefit. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, thank you for coming back on the show. And um, I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back again. So, um, yeah. Um, and thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah.